one of the issues though is the changing nature of the literary economy, how we read and how we write today. More people are reading and writing today than ever before, but our literary journals kind of look the same as they did 50 or 70 years ago. Welcome to the book I had to write. I'm Paul Zakshevsky. This is the show where I feature critically acclaimed writers who tell me all about the stories they just had to get out into the world. We talk about where authors get stuck and how they succeed, whether it's about mindset stuff or craft issues or just how to navigate the changing landscape of publishing. This show covers everything you need to know about how to start and finish your own writing project. Not a month seems to go by without news of another big literary journal or magazine shutting down. The Antioch Review, Astro Magazine, The Believer, Book Forum, Catapult, Creative Nonfiction Magazine, and Tin House. These are just some of the journals that have stopped publishing over the past couple of years. At the beginning of October, administrators at Gettysburg College announced that they were pulling the plug on the Gettysburg Review. This was after a remarkable 35-year run. Like a lot of people, I was really surprised by this news. I wanted to understand both the specific news about the Gettysburg Review, but also about the state of literary journals more broadly. So for that, I turned to Travis Karofsky. He's both an associate professor of creative writing at York College, and he's a leading expert in the history of literary journals. We talk both about the specifics of the Gettysburg Review, but also the bigger story at play here. One about the disconnect between the old model of literary journals and the expectations of readers and writers in the 21st century. Travis Karofsky edited the anthology Paper Dreams, Writers and Editors on the American Literary Magazine. That book won an Independent Publisher Book Award. He's also a frequent commentator on CNN.com and elsewhere. I learned a ton about the changing face of publishing during this conversation, and I got a lot out of it. I hope you will too. So welcome, Travis. Really excited to have you on the show. I thought to kick things off, you could just give us a quick overview of what's been happening with the Gettysburg Review situation. You know, it's funny. I was just on the phone with another creative writing teacher, and I was telling her I was going to come talk to you and told her what happened to the Gettysburg Review. She said, I hadn't heard about it. I said, yeah, I guess it's only like a two-day-old news. So it all happened really fast. I think it was Wednesday, I believe, of this week um, that it came out that the president of Gettysburg College had announced a cessation of Gettysburg Review. This has been on campus since 1988. According to the current editors, they hadn't been in any talks previously before the meeting that announced the termination um, after the next issue of the review. I guess they're allowed to give back some subscriber money and they're kind of scrambling with what to do about it. They put out some Twitter posts um, asking people if they have any kind of history with the review or history with the importance of literary magazines in general. And they put this on their website as well to please reach out to the president and the provost um, at Gettysburg College and let them know how important these institutions are um, to creative writing education and just global literature in general. And it's, it's a really high profile literary magazine, right? I mean, I don't know all the people that it's launched, but certainly some of the names, including folks like Joyce Carol Oates. 
Yeah, so since the beginning, they've had um, kind of a good reputation. They had a lot of funding from Gettysburg College from the beginning, so they could pay writers pretty well, um, make a really beautiful issue, um, an early reporting on, on early issues. I haven't actually looked at the first few issues of the publication, but I started reading it probably in undergrad or graduate school. It's probably the early 21st century. It's a pretty solid, beautiful, well-put-together magazine. And yeah, they published a lot of like Pulitzer Prize-winning writers, a lot of National Book Award-winning writers. No doubt, I don't know any names, but have launched a lot of careers because of their longevity and establishment as kind of one of the kind of top tier. We have this tier kind of ranking system, which I don't really love um, because it makes these things sort of just um, kind of CV lines. But it, it is true, like some magazines do kind of help launch more careers than other ones do and make it in Best American Poetry, Best American Short Stories, whatnot. And Gettysburg Review has always been kind of at the top of kind of those rankings. So I wanted to ask you, why this is happening now. I mean, as you said, the magazine's been around for 35 years. What reason or reasons are the administrators at Gettysburg College giving for wanting to shut the magazine down now? What's been going on? Um, so their argument from the president, and I believe the provost was a co-signer on the original memo publicly shutting down Gettysburg Review, was, was that this um, publication didn't like directly impact the student education, right? Um, and they wanted to, it seemed like from reading between the lines on the memo and also some other things that the editors at Gettysburg Review have said, there's been some hard financial times at Gettysburg College in recent years, which isn't, again, not not the case for a lot of institutions, right? Um, dealing with what here in New England we call like the um, the cliff of 18-year-olds, right? Um, we we're kind of running out of high school seniors. But also since post-2009, um, there's been a lot of kind of like destabilization in higher education economies, right? But they said that they wanted to focus, um, the president said they wanted to focus their um, their energies or I think their, their budget on things that directly impacted student learning, I think is what they said, right? In which the argument then from the Gazebook Review editors was that, well, this does, right? We have interns. We've had 100 interns in the past couple decades, right? Um, you know, we we bring people to the creative writing program. We help establish the, the brand of English and writing at Gettysburg and also just kind of promote the brand of, of Gettysburg College in general. So Gettysburg Review is a victim of some of the financial pressures that have been impacting institutions across the country that also host literary magazines. I mean, this is a much bigger problem than just the Gettysburg Review, right? So literary journals have been on higher education campuses for, gosh, probably almost 100 years now. I remember when Virginia Quarterly Review started or the Southern Review, but these are some of the earlier ones. Georgia Review has been around a long time. Like this isn't, we're not new to having um, literary magazines and literary journals start from or move to institutions of higher education and then sometimes get cut from the budgets of those institutions, right, during the ups and downs of administrative um, directions, priorities, goals, new administrations, um, old administrations leaving that funded the journal, new administrations coming in that didn't, right, maybe losing majors or whatnot. And so the, the journal maybe isn't associated with what they were associated with before. Um, we've seen that a lot in the 21st century, I think, due to a decrease in funding in higher education institutions and some really rocky financial years. So yeah, I think this probably does have to do with what Gettysburg College is, you know, wanting to focus their, their budgets on. It is no doubt, though, because I think if Gettysburg College is a lot like the college I work at, um, if their mission isn't 
because they're not a for-profit company, right? Their mission isn't just to bring in the bottom line. They probably see themselves as a teaching institution first and foremost, but often the mission is also to provide some sort of like community, um, either in literary, artistic, cultural ways is often part of the mission. So no doubt Gettysburg Review fulfilled it. How much of this do you think has to do with a kind of disconnect that happens between the arts and and especially literary arts and um educational institutions or just uh, cultural institutions writ large. I mean, just that the arts uh, often has a hard time kind of making an argument for itself. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, that's probably everything. I think sometimes, especially for people that were within a thing, it seems like their thing is always a thing that's attacked, right? So I'm an Arsenal soccer fan. And I always think like Arsenal always gets the bad <laughs> calls, right? Arsenal is always the one with like the administrative problems. But, you know, every soccer institution inside feels like they're the ones dealing with the most problems, right? So the arts, yeah, certainly we focus on that. And certainly with the literary arts, right, often with things like poetry and whatnot, these aren't big money-making things, right? You're not going to graduate your poetry degree and then give a million dollars back to your institution because it's probably not how your career is going to go, right? Um, so maybe like the arts are often the first thing to be cut. But certainly, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, I think America doesn't really kind of do as well as I would like to sort of fund and support the arts and that goes from you know federal um the federal government down, down to state governments and then they haven't done as well i think to fund higher education institutions so if we expect our higher education institutions to support these literary journals you know i don't think that's going to be a long kind of ongoing thing that we can rely on because these institutions are getting less and less money as well from from funding sources but also you mentioned this in the original email to me i think one of the issues though is the changing nature of the literary economy how we read and how we write today more people are reading and writing today than ever before but our literary journals kind of look the same as they did 50 or 70 years ago um, and i love the gettysburg review and i think it was maybe largely definitely the wrong decision to cut it i think as the editors kind of mentioned what might have been better is to like see how we could adapt the journal to today's learning environment, to today's reading environment, to see what we can do. But I think that certainly could have been a way to go, was more adapt um, Gettysburg Review to 21st century reading environments, to the classroom more, get it involved in more classes, right? Um, but yeah, times have changed a lot, and to be running a literary journal. Like a print literary journal. Yeah, so I was going on there, and I realized I couldn't click on any, not even any, any articles or any poems or any short stories. I don't know. I mean, I don't have the answers, obviously, but I think it's more complicated. I don't think I would have done, and I wish they hadn't, what the president and the provost did by shutting down the journal. It's a established, important section of the American literary economy. It has a lot to offer, um, and just shutting it down is... I mean, for what these things cost versus like what an engineering programs cost or what other things cost, like we're not talking a ton of money, but we are talking real money. Um, so I think I would have probably instead adapted to and asked or demanded if I was a president that this thing kind of really pivot to the mission of what I guess the president probably see the college to be and maybe it needs to get more involved in education and, and helping students in class and maybe it needs to. But again, as the editor said, those conversations weren't weren't had. So do you think that the problems facing the Gettysburg Review are just similar to a lot of the problems facing literary journals right now? And 
just the the vast shift that we've undertaken in the 21st century in terms of technology? So yes and yes. Like so yes, I think what you were saying before about literature is always going to have this struggle, right? Like Ben Sonnenberg, who um, ran Grand Street, right, when asked about like you know, what's the number one problem with literary magazines? Like money, it's always money, right? It's always money and getting an audience, right? That's always gonna be the problem before the internet, after the internet. <laughs> like getting someone interested in this magazine that has a bunch of poems and short stories into it, as amazing as those things are, right, is gonna be hard. It's, it's the same drawing people to your local theater, getting someone into a museum or an art gallery or something. I mean, it's not dissimilar, but also, yes, like times have changed a lot. Like just look at anywhere in your house, right? Everyone's just staring at their phones, right? They're reading different, they're writing different, they're talking um, different online. Jane Friedman um, is kind of one of the best, I think, writers on this topic. She's got a great newsletter if people are interested in this um, about kind of publishing and how um, things are shifting and have shifted over the past 20 years. And she talks about disaggregation. She says content's been disaggregated or kind of pulled out of its packaging. So you don't want to focus too much on container, but, but content in particular, right? So don't focus too much on the website or or the or the print journal, though you will focus on it, right? She's not saying like Mick Sweeney's don't design a beautiful journal. That's not what she's saying. But she's saying like you have to think about it more broadly, right? Things are gonna get pulled out and think about more of she she uses word and she uses it intentionally, but I know how it sounds. Um, branding, right? Creating a culture, creating a community is what she means, right? And if these journals aren't creating a culture or community kind of what are they offering? She thinks a lot of what journals need to be offering in the 21st century isn't just here's a short story, here's a poem, but here's a space to um, understand where that poem sits. Here's a community of writers. Here's something that can support you in kind of your understanding of how writing kind of fits into the world, right? And connect you with other people that think that way, right? So if she thinks if a journal's not doing that, if they're not creating a brand, creating a community, creating an experience, essentially, she thinks it's going to be hard for them to fit into the 21st century where content is essentially expected to be free. And there's endless reading material out there for anyone to kind of pick up. So do you think a journal like, say, McSweeney's, which I know is now a couple decades old, but has done a lot of live events, is, is that what you're thinking of? Or are there other journals also doing I mean, a better job of this? Yes, model? and yes, and they're going to do it differently, right? So you want on Gettysburg Review to do it like, like McSweeney's does. McSweeney's does it like McSweeney's does it, right? Because of how Dave kind of started it, right? Um, but I think a more kind of relational thing for Gettysburg Review might be Georgia Review. Um, I think Gerald Ma has done just an exceptional job there. There, the University of Georgia, kind of pivoting what was already, and again, like Gettysburg, a great journal, and pivoting into the 21st century. He's made Georgia Review. Really, it feels I was going to use the word necessary, but I know I'm probably like one of like 750 people <laughs> reading it. Right. But it feels like a necessary part of reading culture today. Like it plugs into diversity topics going on in literary in the literary world. It plugs into kind of big cultural um, um, conversations that are happening politically. Right. Um, and um, it's they're also creating events and creating community consistently through there. Every introduction he has to the new issues running, I say new, he's probably been there for some years now, of the Georgia Review kind of like puts everything in the issue into kind of conversation in the world now and why it kind of matters now, right? So they've created what is like an old quarterly of like essays and think pieces and stories and poems to make it feel relevant and necessary. He's really made it relevant and necessary. And again, it was always a quality journal, but I think that if you don't make something necessary, right? Then why are we picking it up, right? So they've done a good job of that. McSweeney's is, of course, very different, right? They're like, 
creating like this quirky kind of environment of there like um, they've had different kind of metaphors for it, but like a pirate ship or amusement park or whatever, like they're creating a very different thing. But Gerald's creating someplace that I can think uh, like I'm sitting around with a, a bunch of my favorite fiction writer, philosopher, poet friends and whatnot, and kind of figuring out the world. Right. But, but creating something, I think, is what Jane was trying to get at, create some sort of like something where I can see that what value you're adding to the world, not just like a literary magazine. And again, I'm not saying that's what Gettysburg Review was doing, but it is hard to kind of jump over there and be like, oh, I see why kind of what they're doing is so important. I see kind of how they're directed in, in a new kind of a new way or they, I can see how their value isn't just a quality literary magazine, but but X, Y or Z. Um, not that we don't need just quality literary magazines, but I think it is, you know, a competitive literary reading experience out there in an environment that's shifted. And I don't know, to convince readers to read it, and pick it up and to convince presidents and provosts to support it, I think is it's always a fight and it's not just a fight in 2023 it's a fight every damn year and um they sadly weren't allowed to be part of those conversations where they could fight and stand up for what they believed in for the journal are there other literary journals that you think have also adapted to the 21st century technologies and ways in which uh readers are looking to experience their journals yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I really am excited about um, the Georgia Review. Um, I really keep thinking I'm going to write something about it just to tell everyone how amazing this journal is. I think Gerald's done something absolutely phenomenal with an old established journal to not change the recipe, but make the recipe so important for right now, right? To not say like, oh, yeah, we shouldn't, we'll be publishing like, journals with like long reviews and essays and poems and stories for we need to be doing something else for the 21st century like david shield says but he's like no no that has importance this is intense importance right we've long felt literary work in human history has been important but how do i make sure that that seems important to readers and yeah i'd check out anyone i'd, I'd challenge anyone to to pick up an issue or read one of his introductions and not feel the same way right um, but no, I mean, it's a lot of the same ones. Like I love going to ABP in the book fair. And I was just talking to the fence people. I think David done a good job kind of pivoting fence post Rebecca Wolf. I'm into something kind of new and interesting. N plus one has long been, I think, one of the better journals out there because they have that kind of brand of like, look, we're not just going to pop together some stories and poems in a package and give it to you, but we're going to do kind of the part of your view model. We're going to kind of be a thinking part of the world that also appreciates art and literature and what have you, right? Which has been kind of a long part of this literary magazine. And they've helped to launch several big name writers. Oh yeah. Elif right? uh, Bataman, like a bunch of people, right? Oh, for sure. Right. But there's so many. I love every time I get an issue of Booth in the mail, which is like one of the most fun from Booth College, one of those fun journals, like for some reason they are able to just create like a fun experience on the page. And I know that's something. If I get a journal, I can just open up and it feels like a fun experience and also has some really engaging interviews they always have and some great short stories and poems. Like that's great. I kind of just, I don't know, it's a short life, Paul, and I want to have a good experience, whether it's a poem that somehow, you know, captures me within the pages of a magazine or some amazing ideas about layout and design that kind of create an experience for me to be reading. Um, but I do really, really think though, I, I, and again, I think you kind of nailed it in your original email to me kind of um, talking about kind of what you saw going on here, that there might be, I think, a real kind of reckoning with how these journals work, how they're functioning. Um, Roxane Gay wrote wonderfully like, 
10 or 15 years ago, like maybe there's too many of us, right? You said maybe like we're all competing for the same readers. When I was talking with um, one of the, I believe it's, yeah, one of the N plus one editors um, right around that time, he's like, gosh, maybe we should actually try kind of like banding together in certain ways. What if we unionize, right? What if we did something else? I feel like in some ways, literary journals were our own worst enemies because we're all kind of yelling to the same kind of small audience. Either we need to figure out how to break out of that audience to the broader world, the other 8 billion people on the planet, right? Or figure out how we could actually maybe, you know, make it so readers don't have to spend $70 on, on poetry submissions every month, right? Just to, just to get their poems read, right? There's a lot of noise going on out there, right? And I, I'm kind of hoping with the Gettysburg Review issue that, that that's hopefully the president and the provost are going to get just a ton of emails and a ton of, I don't know if they're on Twitter, tweets and whatnot about this, and that they can maybe say, all right, let's give this a couple of years. Let's see how we can rework what is really an amazing journal into what we at Gettysburg College kind of want to kind of fund the journal, right? How, how are we going to make it into something that, that can succeed? Because it's silly not to have a 100th anniversary of the Gettysburg Review, right? It's kind of silly to stop at 35. I mean, again, these things don't cost like space rocket money. They cost like sort of money, like rich people accidentally leaving couches. I mean, like Joyce Carroll said, the primary reason most of us have heard of Gettysburg College is because of the review. Right. Um, I thought Gettysburg College was Ivy League College, right? Um, I'm from Oregon. I'm from the woods. I, I know nothing about anything, certainly not before I, I went to graduate school myself, right? I just thought it was one of those really, really, really important institutions of higher education. But yeah, these things are actual. And that's why they started Gettysburg Review, um, Gettysburg College. Originally in 1988, they wanted to bring some prestige, right, to, to the institution, right? They're like, let's make something amazing. That's why... Um, Southern Review started. That's why a lot of these journals start because they can bring an air of like prestige, which our museums do, our football teams do. Like it is a real thing that institutions do to say like, hey, we are creating culture. We're part of the broader culture, right? And that's important for our students. That's important to the community, and that makes us a cultural institution, right? And so they did it, and they did it really, really, really well. Um, and I don't know, they should keep doing it. Well, I know this isn't going to be the last time that we talk about the challenges facing literary journals today, but. Uh, for now, I just really want to thank you for your time, Travis. This was super informative. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's been great to talk to you. You've been listening to my interview with Travis Karofsky. He's an associate professor of creative writing and a leading expert on literary magazines. I'm Paul Zakrzewski. If you've enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in Apple Podcasts. I'm always grateful for reviews and for sharing the show with friends. To get show notes and a transcript delivered to your inbox, please subscribe to my newsletter, The Book I Want to Write. It's at bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. Every week, I also publish short essays about writing mindset, developments in publishing, and more. If you're working on your own book you have to write, or you want to get started, maybe I can help. Find out more about me and my book coaching at bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. That's bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. And thanks for listening.